0: Gonna invite you to stand with me if you would, and we will be reading together from Galatians chapter 4 and beginning in the first verse, and I invite you to read along with me. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father." Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, today again, we thank you for your word, for the power that is in your word, that your word has given us the assurance that it will never return unto you void, but it will always accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. Today, Father, we pray that your word would impact our lives in a powerful and eternal way. Lord, we hold your word in high esteem today. We declare the authority of your word, and we ask that you would give us the faith that we need to yield in all of its ordinances, all of its directives, all of its commands. Help us by your spirit to live lives that are pleasing to you as we've been instructed by your word. And we ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Today as we dive into this passage of Scripture here in Galatians, uh, it is a Scripture passage that continues to build upon the arguments that Paul has been making to this point. Of course, he's used the first three chapters to firmly establish that salvation is not by the deeds that we perform. It's not by the works of the law. It is not by meritorious effort on our part, certainly not by human achievement, but salvation is by faith in the accomplished work of God that he performed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus. Saved by faith. And then there are expectations that He places upon us. Expectations that result in behavior that is to be godly. Behavior that is to be reflective of the nature of Christ which is being worked out in our lives by the power of His Spirit according to His Word. But that uh, reality of good works, is not to win our salvation. Rather, it is the fruit of salvation. Now that we have been set free by God, we have been empowered by His Spirit to live as bond servants or bond slaves of God. For the only people that are truly free to live lives that are pleasing to God are those who have been redeemed by the power of Jesus. Those who have been set free. And it is for freedom that he set us free. And so the caution that he gives us later on in this book is that we would not use our freedom then to once again become enslaved by sin or inyoked by the law or even by guilty conscience. Rather, we would live free. Free not to pursue a life of selfish ambition and independence and autonomy, but freedom to live as bond slaves of God, for that is the only place that true freedom lies. Well, as we look at this passage of Scripture, having been built upon the Scripture that goes before it, we come to a place where Paul begins to talk about the realities of our salvation. And this is certainly not a comprehensive teaching on salvation, And yet there are three truths or three realities concerning our salvation that we see set forth so beautifully in this passage of Scripture. And so this morning we're going to take a look at these three realities of salvation and we begin by considering the first one, our former slavery, our former slavery. Galatians verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, again it says, now I say, As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. There's a lot packed into this. But what Paul is showing us here is that prior to salvation, all people are like children. Not positionally, but practically. They're dependent on others. They're under the care of guardians and managers. They're without privileges, without rights, without responsibilities. They don't engage in the business affairs of the household, nor do they exercise any authority. They are like children. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my mom and dad, it was time for us to get a new car. And so they took me and my sister to the local Buick dealership, and we went in, and we started looking at cars and kicking tires, and Dad found this beautiful, big Electra 225. How many of you remember the Electra 225? Yeah, all right. We're dating ourselves. (laughs) Beautiful land yacht. (laughs) And my sister and I were just enthralled with this beast of a car. I mean, the Speedo read 120, and it worked. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> Had a big V8 with a four-barrel carburetor, and it rode like a, like a Cadillac. Well, I was going to say like a Cadillac. It rode like a Buick. And my sister and I, we got in that car and we were bouncing up and down in the back seat. Dad, buy the car! Buy the car! It had one of those big windows where you could stretch out and sleep on a road trip without fear of a ticket because there were no seatbelt laws. <laughs> and so one of us would lay down on the back seat. The other would stretch out on that back window. Or if we wanted to, we'd lay on the floorboard. And I mean, it was just a big, beautiful car. You see, my sister and I at that age had not learned the important components of negotiation that even when you're jumping up and down on the inside you're supposed to remain stoic you're supposed to act like well you know it's it's a it's a fair car it's it's nice as far as cars go but the last thing you're supposed to do is just go out of your mind right so we were going out of our minds but it really didn't matter oh dad bought the car But Dad did not buy the car because me and my sister were thrilled with the car. He bought the car because he liked the car, and he and Mom felt like this would be a good uh, expenditure. They needed a good, dependable car. Buick had a good reputation. What I'm saying is that as children, we did not exercise authority in the business affairs of the family because dad could have just as easily said, well, I appreciate the fact that you kids like this car, but mom and I have decided it's not the one for us. And that would have been the end of the discussion. There wouldn't have been any further bargaining or negotiating, at least if dad gave us the look or the tone, which meant that's it. This is what we're doing. And so Paul is saying that we were like Children, we were like kids that we were under the care of guardians and the care of managers without privileges and rights and certainly without authority regarding the family affairs. We were like children. But then he likens the children unto slaves. And in other places in the New Testament, he goes beyond saying that we were like slaves to say flat out with great clarity, you were slaves. We were slaves of sin and slaves of corruption, he tells us in Romans, that we were slaves of the fear of death, the writer of Hebrews says. According to the Bible, human beings are slaves. And that's a concept that is probably repugnant to our Western civilization sensitivities. But we are slaves. We're slaves. Prior to coming to Christ, we're slaves of sin, slaves of corruption, slaves of self. But after we come to Jesus, we are slaves of righteousness, slaves of holiness, slaves of God. One writer puts it like this. I want you to pay close attention. Freedom is not a question of whether or not we would like to serve, but the choice of which master we will serve. Like it or not, friend, you're a slave. You're either a slave of the kingdom of darkness or you're a slave of the kingdom of light. That's the choice you have. But this idea of rugged independence, this idea of absolute autonomy and independence even from God is not biblical. We are slaves. We are creatures. There is only one creator. Only one who has the authority, the right, And the wherewithal to do what he wants with his creation. Everything else is created. I think it was Luther that referring to the devil who he he said even the devil is God's devil. I want you to hear that. Satan's not sovereign. Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He has a name that is higher than every name. That his name is far above every principality and power. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So before salvation, we were captives of sin, slaves of selfishness. But in Galatians, Paul speaks of another kind of slavery. Slavery to the elemental things of the world. And so again, here in verse 3, he says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. You see, before Jesus came, the Jews were under bondage to the written law. But the Gentiles, under bondage to the law of conscience. Just two different ways of seeing the same experience. Slavery, bondage. You see, salvation was coming. The kingdom was coming. The inheritance of the promise was coming. But before it came, people were like children. Not mature sons capable of inheriting a promise, but under bondage to the law. And that is still true today. People who don't know Christ are under bondage to the law, slaves to the law, captives to the law, condemned by a guilty conscience. Why do you think the alcoholism rate is as high as it is? Why do you think that the abuse rate of, of uh, you know, drugs is as high as it is? People trying to self-medicate—they're under bondage to the law, or under bondage even to the law of conscience. The Jews under bondage to the Mosaic law, the Gentiles under bondage to the law of conscience, but all under bondage, all like children or even slaves. But of course, the good news is people don't have to stay that way. Can you say amen? Through Christ Jesus, we've been set free from the law of sin and of death. We've come into full spiritual maturity through the sacrifice of our Lord, adopted as sons of God, receiving the inheritance of the promise. Praise the Lord. So the first reality of our salvation then is a recognition that prior to coming to Jesus, we were children and even slaves. But then this passage goes on to talk about what I will call for this morning's message, our appointed conversion. Our appointed conversion. Look again here at verses one and two. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not at all, uh, does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers. Watch this. Until the date set by the Father. Does it say until the date set by the penitent sinner? No. Who set the date? The Father. Until the date set by the Father. And this, of course, uh, another way of saying this that we see in Scripture and other places is Until the fullness of time. And what this shows us here is that God is the author of salvation. Turn to your neighbor and tell him God is the author of salvation. Do we really believe that? God is the author of salvation. Do we really believe that? I hope we do. Because it's what the scripture teaches. God is the author of salvation. I'm not the author of my salvation. God is. He redeemed me from the fruitless works of darkness. God is the author of salvation. He is the sovereign one. You see, it's, it's His plan. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the Lamb of God slain from when? The foundation of the world. In fact, the Bible tells us that He chose us before the world was. And in God's plan, there was an appointed time when His salvation would be revealed through His Son. He set the date in the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law in the fullness of time. So what were the factors that went into time coming to a place of fullness? Planet Earth coming to a stage of preparedness to receive the sun. What was, what did that look like? What were the elements that went into it? Well, I believe that there are some elements that we can see that were apparent and probably those that are beyond our understanding this side of heaven. But some that we can look at from a cursory Uh, review of history would be things like the rise of Alexander the Great. Well, what did that have to do with it? Well, think about it. Alexander the Great, through military force, extended the Greek language across the globe, at least across the known free world, paving the way for the rapid spread of the gospel in the tongue of the people. It was in the fullness of time. Another aspect would be the Roman Empire. You've heard me talk before about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was an incredible time when the great military power of Rome extended the greatest period of peace that the world had known to that time. That with relatively small uh, combat, small military action, because of its tremendous and intimidating power, Rome had expanded and had stretched out the tent stakes of the empire. And then for almost three centuries, there was relatively little major combat. The Pax Romana. Again, it would provide the opportunity for the gospel to be spread. But even more than that were the Roman roadways. How many of you have ever been overseas to see some of the great highways built by Rome? It's amazing that even today you can ride on them. Even today you can walk on them. Major roads that were constructed way back in the Roman Empire. In fact, Rome built no less than 29 military highways that radiated out from the capital. 29 that just radiated out from the capital going to the points where the roman empire had stretched its influence there were 372 great roads covering 250,000 miles their major roadways and 50,000 miles of those roadways were paved with stone think about it and we think the american roadways was a big deal <laughs> And we did all of that, which was a big deal, but we did all of that with power tools and power equipment. Huge land movers, right? That roadway system helped to facilitate the spread of the gospel following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the fullness of time. Listen, friends, God knows what he is doing. And when he brought humanity and human civilization to full ripeness, he said, now it is time. And he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. But there's another factor, and that factor involves the readiness of God's people Israel. You see, Israel was plagued with idolatry. When you look at the history of Israel, it's almost embarrassing. You're almost embarrassed for them, aren't you? That they were so up and down and on again and off again, spiritually hot, spiritually cold, spiritually lukewarm. It was so much of a trial on good old Moses that one day he's saying, God, spare your people. And the next day he's like, God, kill them all. (laughs) But at the point when Jesus was to come, Israel had returned to the homeland from Babylonian captivity. And do you know what? They never again returned to idolatry. God had used the heavy-handedness of Babylonian captivity to purge them of their idolatrous ways. And even though they weren't living according to Judaism the way God would have liked to have seen them, in other words, understanding that these are types and shadows of the Messiah who is to come, but we come to God by faith in what He's declared. Even so... They were looking for Messiah. It was the fullness of time. At the right time, God sent his son. And so we see that God is the author of salvation. But what we also notice here is that God is the primary actor in salvation. He's not a supporting actor. He's the primary actor in salvation. We need to hear this because this is like rubbing a cat backwards. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you have done that that as a child, but it can be a very unpleasant experience both for the cat and for you. (laughs) But there's something in our human nature that recoils against the statement that God is the primary actor in salvation. Because we want to think that we're in control, don't we? We want to think that our will is more important than His will. but The Bible is very clear that everything God does, He does for His own purpose and His own plan in order to bring glory to His matchless name. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the nations and they that dwell therein. Who is the clay to tell the potter what he can do? Friends, we have this egocentricity that is innate to the human nature. It is not about us. Creation is for His glory, to the glory of His matchless name. So not only is God the author of salvation, God is the primary actor in salvation. Not a supporting actor. This was His plan. This was His purpose. This was His objective. And it was an eternal objective. In fact, it was always God's intention to create for Himself a people and to do so for His own glory. That's why. That's why He creates a people for His own name. It is for His glory. This was the thought behind Uh, the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 25. O Lord, You are my God. You have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You see, in the days of old, God chose Abraham to be the father of the faithful. Chose him right out of an idolatrous situation. Chose him from a home that many scholars believe was the home of an idol maker. The Terah made idols to a foreign god. And yet God, in His mercy, looked at Terah's son Abraham and said, this is the one. He's the one that I'm going to use. And it wasn't because Abraham was righteous in his self. It's not that Abraham had any inherent holiness. He didn't. He went on to lie even after he was already called the friend of God. And then when he get in a tight situation, instead of trusting the Lord, he would lie And yet God said, nope, he's the one. He's the one I'm going to choose to be the father of the faithful. Psalm 135 and 4 says that God chose Jacob for himself. Deuteronomy 7, 6, he chose Israel for his glory. He chose them, he redeemed them to be his holy people, and he did all of it for his glory. So Isaiah 43 and 7 tells us, Everyone who is called by My name, I have created for My glory. That's why. You are created for the glory of God. In the last days, God has chosen and redeemed for Himself those who will believe in Christ. Colossians 3.12, they are chosen of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, chosen from before. From the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy 2.10, chosen to obtain salvation. Titus 1 and 1, chosen of God. Revelation 17.14, the called and chosen and faithful. Ephesians 1 and 4, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is what Jesus had in mind when he looked right at his disciples, eyeball to eyeball, and said, you did not choose me but I chose you. You see, friends, even though that rubs us the wrong way in our fallen humanity, logic would tell us if there is a sovereign, there can only be one who is sovereign. And so the power of of logic would tell us that if God is sovereign, then we are not. He is the sovereign Lord of glory who, do, who does all things well, who always acts in ways that are wholly righteous and that does all things according to His good pleasure that He might receive glory. For He is God and everything else is created by Him, for Him, and through Him. Creation's about Him. It's not about us. So God has chosen and redeemed for Himself those who will believe in Christ. And He did all of this for His own glory. And so the Apostle Peter tells us, but you are a chosen generation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, when we put our faith in Christ Jesus, it is to the praise of His glory. He has predestined our election. Acts chapter 13 says very clearly that those who will be saved are those who have been appointed unto eternal life. You can't get any clearer than that. So what do you do for your friends and loved ones who are not saved? You pray that they would be in the elect. Well, how do I know if God has chosen them or not? That doesn't matter. If God is eternal, who is the Alpha and Omega, who stands beyond time and space, you think He doesn't hear your prayers before you were conceived? He knows and sees and hears everything with perfect and immediate knowledge. We're the ones that have the problem because we are sequential beings. There was a point when we were born and there was a point when we will die. And so we have this, this framework that sees everything in sequence and yet God stands beyond time and space and sees past, present and future simultaneously and with perfect immediacy. So he can hear your prayers before you were ever even conceived. That's how big our God is. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen! Praise God! Don't live! Under the bondage of a guilty conscience. For God has set you free by the power of Jesus from the power of the law. Notice in this text that he, he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Not according to our good works. Not according to our independence. Not according to our autonomous free will choice. But what? According to the kind intention of His will. He didn't have to do anything. We don't wrangle God's arm up behind Him by our confession. We throw ourselves on His mercy and by His kind intention. He saves us. Wow. He has loved us with a love that is so great that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He did all of this according to the kind intention of His will. Why? To the praise of the glory of His grace. Friends, that's amazing grace. That's incomprehensible grace. Grace that would say, You don't deserve this, but I'm saving you anyway. Charles Spurgeon likened the grace of God to a raging river that is rushing downstream, and people are perishing in that river. And God is standing on the edge of the river, and He's reaching out, and He's grabbing people, and He's pulling them to safety. Why? For the glory of His grace. That's why according to his kind intention. He predestined us to the adoption as sons in the fullness of time. It's what the scriptures say. So he not only chose us for salvation, he chose the time for our salvation. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. And so here we're told that Christ Jesus was born uh, of a woman. Notice that He wasn't born of a man. So why does Paul say Jesus born of a woman and not born of a man? Well, obvious. there's an obvious reason, right? <laughs> men don't have babies. Women have babies. It's one of the things that always perplexes me about the hyperfeminists that they will work with every ounce of energy that they have to try to be men. And I'm like, time out, ladies. You realize that God has given you the high and holy privilege of bearing the offspring of mankind. Hello? You should take that as a high and holy and sacred honor. Men don't do that. Women do. That's powerful stuff. A woman can say to a man, there's nothing that you can do that I can't. You know, when it comes to uh, physical things, we know that in general men are stronger than women. I mean, they are. You're always going to have the exception, right? But do you realize that there's one thing a woman can do a man can't ever do? <laughs> Bear children! Somebody that tells you that that is not a big thing, ignore them! It is a high and holy privilege! Privilege! I could go on and on, but that's a message for another day. It's amazing. So there's an obvious reason. Obvious, there's an obvious reason, obviously, if that's not redundant. There's an obvious reason here why he says born of a woman rather than born of a man, because men don't bear kids, women do. But I would suggest that there is another reason. In fact, there are two other reasons that I believe are even more significant. The first is that Jesus is the righteous seed of humanity. In order to understand that, we've got to go back to the fall of man, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. And they have partaken of the forbidden fruit, and sin and death have now been introduced into the world, and man is estranged from God. As a result, there's a curse. And God curses the serpent, and He curses man, and He curses the woman. The curse on the woman to multiply her pain in childbirth, to tell her your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Curse. The curse on the man is the curse on the ground, the curse on his work, that now it is with great toil and by the sweat of his brow that he will be able to produce. And of course, death to not only he and his wife, but to all humanity. For in Adam all die. But then my favorite part, his curse on the serpent. I get some sick pleasure from this. (laughs) His curse on the serpent, his curse on Satan. He says to the serpent, I will place great enmity between the woman and you, between the woman's seed and you. You will bruise the heel of the woman's seed, but he will crush your head. He'll crush your head. And at that moment of the curse, God in his mercy gave mankind hope for the future. I mean, think of it. He is proclaiming a curse, and in the midst of his curse, he declares hope for mankind. There will come A savior. He declared that Messiah would come. He would come through the human race. He would be born of a woman. Now, fast forward to the call of Abraham. God chose Abraham to be the father of the faithful, set him apart to accomplish his plan. He said, Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That the promises that were spoken to Abraham were also spoken to his seed, who is Christ, Paul has told us previously in chapter 3. So the promise of salvation was through the seed of Abraham, and that seed is Christ. Now Matthew's gospel gives us the lineage of Jesus, and it begins with Mary, and it goes all the way back to the son of David, the son of Abraham. But in the Gospel of uh, Luke, it traces the lineage all the way back to Adam. So in Matthew, we see the lineage traced from Mary back to Jacob, back to Isaac, back to Abraham. But in Luke, we see the lineage traced all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Lowercase s. So to whom the promise? So to whom was the promise given? Initially, the promise was given to Adam and Eve as they stood there listening to God saying, there is enmity between Eve, the woman, and the seed of the woman who would be Christ, the son of promise who would crush the head of, of the serpent, born under law, born of a woman. So why did Paul say Jesus was born of a woman and not born of man? Because he is the righteous seed of humanity that God prophesied. But there's a second reason Paul says Jesus was born of a woman and not of a man. It's, I believe, an allusion to the incarnation, You see, Joseph was not Jesus' father by conception, but by adoption. Not by conception, but by adoption. Before Jesus' birth, Mary was a virgin. Isaiah 7 and 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So prior to the birth of Jesus, Mary was a virgin. Now after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had several children. The New Testament's very clear. Matthew and Mark's Gospels both record brothers and sisters of Jesus. In fact, earlier in the epistle of Galatians, Paul says that he went to Jerusalem earlier and met with James, the brother of Jesus. So she's not perpetually a virgin but she was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. say, well, how could that be? Well, the angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive and bear a child. And then when Joseph had misgivings, the angel appeared to Joseph and said, don't fear about taking Mary as your wife, for the child who is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Well, Pastor Greg, this is 2017, you really believe that? Of course I believe that. When I look at human DNA and the fact that we are finally coming to the place where we even recognize what it is and have admitted to ourselves, this is highly encoded information. Information that bespeaks super intelligence. You think the God who designed DNA isn't powerful enough to create supernatural conception? Give me a break. He speaks and light is formed. Pastor John read it this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness doesn't comprehend it. came to His own, and His own didn't receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the sons of God. Hallelujah. I absolutely believe in the virgin birth. Without hesitation. If God's big enough to create the heavens and the earth, He's big enough to do whatever He wants to do For His good pleasure to bring Himself glory. Can you say amen? So in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman. He was a human being. Born of a virgin. He was incarnated God in the flesh. He was born under the law to redeem us from the law. You see, the demand of the law was perfection. If you violated the law in one point, you were, by heaven's standard, a lawbreaker. Well, that's everyone in the human race, save Jesus. He was the only one who was born under the law, but kept the law on our behalf. Kept the law with absolute perfection. He is the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, the Apostle Peter writes. He is the Holy One of God. He is the Holy One of Israel. He knew no sin, and in Him no sin was found. Jesus said of Himself, The ruler of this world has no claim on Me. He is the sinless, perfect Lamb of God, born under the law, keeping the law, To redeem us from the law. He is the one who appointed our conversion. He called us by His grace. He chose us by His tender mercy. And He redeemed us by His sacrificial death. To His name be praise and glory forevermore. Can you say amen? So three realities of our salvation. Formerly we were children. Yes, even slaves. And then we were saved by an appointed conversion. And that brings us to the third reality, our present privilege, our present privilege. You see, once we were slaves, once we were children, once we were aliens and debtors, but now we're free. Mature sons adopted into his family, heirs of the inheritance, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. You see, those in Christ are set free not to live a life of autonomy. You see, I mean, we've got to get this. Selfish ambition is at the heart of the old nature. Let's go again back to the original sin. Satan came to Adam and Eve, approached Eve first. And what's he say? First, he denies what God has said, questioning what God has said, twisting what God has said. And he says something along these lines. Has not God said that in the day that you partake of the fruit, you will become like him? Well, what was that? He was preying upon the selfish desire of mankind to cast off God. And to be a God unto ourselves. We don't want him. We don't want to live by his rules and regulations. We don't want to live within the parameters of his will. We want to be our own man, be our own woman, be our the the, the fate of our destiny is in our hands. And we really have a problem with this as Americans who pride themselves in our rugged individualism. But friends, that's from the pit. We are slaves. We're either slaves of the creation or we're slaves of the Creator. And it's only in being bond slaves of the Creator that we find what true freedom really is. Now we can cast off the dominance and the bondage of sin and live for His glory. And find in that a richness of life that doesn't exist anywhere else. For we've been created for His glory. Can you say amen? He set us free to serve Him. Set us free to pursue holiness. Set us free to obey the Father's will. And so again, the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 and 16, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. So now, having been liberated in Christ, we are free to what? Serve God. And this position of freedom is completely opposite to our prior position. Because you're sons of God, you're redeemed, you're adopted, you're heirs of God, you're joint heirs with Christ Jesus. God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Think of it. Now the God who was far off, who had separated himself because of sin, our sin. Why did he do that? To protect us. You realize that if we are sinners in the presence of a holy God, we'll be annihilated in an instant? How would you like to go out into eternity in that condition? An immortal being who now suffers in torment because you had the unfortunate opportunity to enter into the presence of a holy God with sin. That's what happened. Look back at the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and were struck dead at the altar of God. Struck dead in the New Testament church. Paul said, when you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, be careful. Examine your hearts because there are some who are sick and even dead because they have handled the things of God in a way that is irreverent. A holy God. So He protects Adam and Eve by expelling them from the garden and putting a flaming torch there at the garden held by a holy angel. Stay out of My presence. But now because of His tender mercy, He sends His Holy Son to become sin for us and to bear in his body on the tree our guilt, our condemnation, our filth. The horror of the cross for Jesus was not the physical suffering. It was the incomprehensibility of the Holy One of God becoming sin for us and being cast from the Father's presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? but he did it for us. And now this holy and transcendent God, we call Papa, an intimacy with God, where we are invited by the Lord himself to come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain help and mercy in time of need. Wow. Wow. Friends, if that grace isn't amazing, I don't know what it is. He sends a Spirit into our hearts where there's intimacy now. He sends a Spirit into our hearts where now there's empowerment, there's spiritual guidance, there's enablement to live lives that please Him. We're no longer slaves, but we are free from sin's dominion, free from a guilty conscience, free to partake of our divine inheritance in Christ. Can you say amen? So let's tie up some loose ends this morning. And as we close, consider a couple of implications of sonship. The first is personal responsibilities. And there's a number of them. But very briefly, we have a personal responsibility in our thinking. You see, before salvation, we were hostile in our minds toward God, the Bible says. Now we have the mind of Christ, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians He goes on to tell us in Philippians 4, we are to think on those things that are true and honest, those things that are just and pure, lovely, those things of good report, those things that are virtuous and things that are praiseworthy. That's what we're to think on. That's what we're to saturate our minds with. To set our affections on things above and not on the things of earth. And listen, friends, this is the essence of spiritual warfare. The essence of spiritual warfare is not you screaming at the devil like a madman or like a raving lunatic. That is not what spiritual warfare even is. And one of these days I'm going to take a message to talk about that at length. But let me tell you what the essence of spiritual warfare is, not according to the vain imaginations of men, but according to the word of God. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Think about this. The battlefield for man's soul is the mind. It's the heart of man. Keep that in mind as I read this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And then he goes on to describe what those fortresses are. We are destroying, listen to this, speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking captive every thought, captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the essence of spiritual warfare. Taking control of your mind, being renewed in your mind by the washing and regenerating power of the Word of God but also in our behavior we have responsibility. First Peter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. See, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. We are commanded to pursue personal holiness. That's a command of God. A command from the creator of the universe who has redeemed us, not with things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have kingdom responsibilities as well. Kingdom responsibilities. We are responsible to the king. He tells us, whoever would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. That's what he says. What he's telling us is that we have to take selfish ambition and sacrifice it. We have to sacrifice selfish ambition. We have to consider our lives not our own, but rather bought with a price. We are the possession of God. We are his bond slaves. And so we say, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want to do. Now, I don't want to cheapen this, but I do want to give you an illustration from modern time. It's from Star Wars. <laughs> so some of you will appreciate this. <laughs> but there was a time in Star Wars, it's so interesting how the Lord shows me things of a scriptural nature sometimes, even when I'm watching a movie, I'll see it and go, wow, that's a great illustration. <laughs> but Darth Vader is standing in the... uh I think he's in the Death Star, but he's in like the inner sanctum, like, you know, that his private stateroom where you don't go there unless you're summoned, you know. And so one of his leading admirals, I believe, is called to his stateroom. And he goes into his stateroom and Vader, you know, gives him a command. And when he gets done, the, the admiral, this high ranking admiral says, yes, my lord, turns on his heel and he's out of his presence. And it hit me. I'm like, wow! That's the kind of obedience that God deserves from me. Not, but Lord! Well, I'll get around to it. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, my Lord. And obey! And obey! So it's that personal responsibility to pursue holiness, to live lives that please Him. Jesus said that not everyone who says to me on the day of judgment will say, will enter into the, into the kingdom. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter in. But who does the will of my Father? And then Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. What are those commands? He gives many in the scriptures. We're commanded to assemble together. You know, church attendance is not optional in the Bible. That's a divine expectation. It's a divine expectation. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together with the brethren as is the manner of some, but all the more as you see the day approaching. If anything, as we see the signs of the times happening out, we should be having more opportunities to get together, not fewer. It's not optional. It's expected. We're we're expected to support the church and I'm not talking simply about the institution, but the people, right? To bear one another's burdens. And what will you do? Fulfill the law of Christ. We're expected to control our tongues. James one twenty six. if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Worthless. Expected to care for his church. Philippians 2 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He deals with these things pretty clearly. You see, once we were slaves of sin and corruption in self, once we were children under guardians and managers, we were in bondage under guilt, guilt of the law, guilt of the conscience. Now we've been set free from the law of sin and death. Now we've come into full spiritual maturity through Christ. Now we've been adopted as sons of God. Now we are prepared through him to receive the inheritance of the promise. Let us live then in that freedom, pursuing personal holiness as bond slaves of God, loving, supporting, and caring for his church. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word, for its power to accomplish your purpose. We recognize, Lord, that even as Christians, there are great doctrines of the faith that sometimes don't settle well with our old nature. And they raise as many questions as the answer. And we understand that, Lord, because we know that we're limited, that we see things as it were through a glass dimly. Help us in those times to simply accept by faith that which you have declared and to recognize that we will understand things more fully when we are in your presence. But in the meantime, Lord, let these things strengthen our faith and let them build us up so that we will live according to your good pleasure. And now, Father, as we return unto you a portion of that which you've richly blessed us with, we ask that you will take these offerings, that you'll multiply them and give us wisdom to know how best to invest them in your kingdom's work. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you give to the Lord's work.